0: but I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow gonna be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, There's this thing called new normal. I, th- I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is gonna be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late.
1: Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors, and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition, and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Welcome back to episode six of the REACH podcast. In today's show i'm chatting to sarah weller who's a clinical exercise physiologist and a certified cancer exercise trainer based out of vancouver in canada so in today's show we're talking a little bit about her experience and how she set up the program how she developed a referral process with physicians and just how difficult that was to do along with just her experience in the trenches in working with so many different cancer patients different cancer types along the course of the cancer continuum, whether it's pre-treatment, during treatment, particularly at the end of treatment too. A really important piece of this talk today is this idea of terminal cancer patients and how exercise can be beneficial to them because it looks a little bit different to how exercise would look for uh, an early stage cancer patient with, with long-term survival prospects. The other really important part of this talk and, and dealing with cancer patients who are at the end of their life is the idea that you may lose some of your cancer patients and they may pass away and how that's an important thing to know if you're working in this field and how to deal with that psychologically because you tend to get really close to these people and it can affect you and so it's just something that I think needs to be highlighted more when professionals are interested in this area that it's something that can and should be expected. As I said, Sarah's worked with a ton of different cancer patients and and a variety of cancer types and treatments. And there's a lot of variations to exercise that need to happen based on the side effects they may have, whether it's a limited range of motion from surgery, working with fatigue or peripheral neuropathy. So she gave a really good insight into some of the types of exercise she modifies. And finally, we talk about just what her consultation looks like and how she develops her program and, and implements it and really the flexibility that's needed in her approach to working with these people because there is such a diversity there. Your ability to work with these people is largely determined on how flexible how flexible you can be and how much you're willing to work with them. So this episode is a little bit more technical and certainly more directed towards professionals who are interested in this area. But I think even patients and survivors themselves will get a lot out of knowing what to expect when you're going into one of these consultations. If you're looking for more information on Sarah, you can find her on our website at sarahweller.ca or you can find her on Twitter. Her username is at underscore Sarah Weller. You can also find me on Twitter at Kieran Fairman or you can go to our website reachbeyondcancer.com and follow me on various social media sites from there. So thanks a lot for tuning in, folks, and enjoy the show
0: so i'm a clinical exercise physiologist and i specialize in working in oncology with anyone with a cancer diagnosis at all points along the cancer care continuum so from initial diagnosis during treatment into long-term survivorship and into end-of-life care Um, my background i guess so i've got training uh, as an exercise physiologist with a bachelor's of applied science in human movement studies from australia Um, I've worked in the industry mostly with cancer survivors for the last 12 years. And I started with, I guess, a chronic disease kind of focus in my early career, um, based on what the Australian medical system was supporting. So the first kind of six years of my career was working with all types of chronic disease, um, but a lot of cancer at that time. And a lot of other things as well, because early on, you don't uh, tend to have a full-time job uh, as an exercise physiologist. Um, So, you know, I did everything from sports-specific conditioning to tutoring at a university with rehab and all those types of things. But I kept being called back kind of into the cancer realm. Um, And I think part of that was just due to kind of my skill set and my interest. And I I was really successful working with people with the cancer diagnosis and helping them to improve you know their quality of life their physical function um, during their treatments so about six years ago um, I moved to Canada and the Canadian medical system is really different from the Aussie system and when I got here you know I, I was I landed and was just hoping to have a fun working holiday and ended up finding my new home and getting really stuck into cancer rehab and developing private, cancer recovery programs. So I worked in a private clinic for about five years. And then last year, I started my own cancer recovery exercise program um, to try and address a gap in the care that was available for people with cancer. So my program is based out of a private physiotherapy clinic. Uh, It's, you know, it's one year old as of a few days ago. Um, And the goal of the program is to help support anyone with a cancer diagnosis, using exercise as medicine. So I'm working with people with all types of cancers at all stages of their cancer journey, um, often during treatment or immediately post-treatment and surgeries, um, with many different goals and focuses. And it's individualized, patient-centered, evidence-based care um, that our program provides in either one-on-one, a small group, a home-based or whatever we need to do kind of setting to help that person get active and improve their quality of life and physical function.
1: The first six years you you were here before you set up your company last year, you were still working with cancer patient survivors, is that correct?
0: Yeah, that's correct. I was uh, working for someone else's program um, with cancer survivors and they, they probably were probably 90% of my caseload in a private clinic at that point.
1: Right. So how, how did that work then? And how did you find patient survivors? How did they find you? Uh, you know, how did that system work?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question. So in in Canada, it's uh, it has its challenges with how people find out about, I guess, these private fee-for-service kind of businesses. Um, the reason that I started a private business um, within this area was because nothing else existed. And our healthcare system doesn't have any um exercise-based services um for the majority of cancers right now and I'm working on changing that. So patients will often find out about um these services through their healthcare professionals. So if they're working with, you know, a physiotherapist or a nurse practitioner or a clinical counselor, they'll often be referred in by those people um, to the kind of program that I run. Um, the doctors uh, are getting better at referring patients in however that's really slow be careful with how they refer to fee-for-service programs and then the other part of how I get referrals is actually through long-term disability and extended medical um, health care insurance so they will fund people that are returning to work um, to go through a physical conditioning program that's specific to a cancer recovery and so that's one part of how my patients find me
1: yeah, that's interesting. I think it kind of speaks to the challenges in in folks who are interested in getting something like this off the ground. You really do face a lot of barriers in terms of actually getting people through the door. Uh, can you touch on how how did how did you start to make those connections with physicians and oncologists for referrals? Uh, do you reach out to them? How much, you know, are they bought in straight away, or do you have to keep kind of going back to them? And, and how do you sell that process?
0: Yeah, normally it's me reaching out to them um, or my patients reaching out to them, to be honest. People often contact me, you know, a cancer survivor will often contact me and I'll often send them to their doctor, um, whether it be for medical clearance or to, you know, tell them what they're doing and how how they're being so successful because of their exercise. So I think the more that the uh, medical oncologists and the primary care physicians are hearing from their patients directly, that they're engaged in an exercise program that's specific for cancer and that's helping them, then the more referrals we start to see come through from those professionals. I do a lot of community outreach and I uh, I do a lot of in-services for medical clinics and doctors, nurse practitioners, kind of the whole healthcare professional team, and spend a lot of my time educating people on the benefits of exercise for a cancer survivor, um, how we make it safe, what kind of impact and outcomes they can expect to get from, you know, three or six or 12 months of training. And that's really beneficial in helping get the buy-in from the doctors. I think most doctors know that exercise is good, um, but many think that it's enough just to tell their patient that they're treating that they should do it. And behavior change doesn't normally happen that quickly of just, you know, a doctor saying you should exercise and the person walks away and they're kind of blindsided by not really knowing what to do and how to do that safely and how to do that during treatment as well.
1: It's such a good point that I want to highlight a couple of things you were, you were speaking about first, the amount of outreach you do and educational seminars and speaking to both patients themselves, people in the community and the physicians and oncologists is such an important part of getting a program like this off the ground because, as you said, they do understand the general concept of exercise, but they don't understand or they may not you know be aware of the the wealth of research there is. Showing how powerful exercise can be in cancer care, and so part of you developing that credibility where they feel comfortable referring people to you is showing them that you have that knowledge and showing them what can be done, and really, it's it's kind of moving away from, uh, two separate entities in in moving towards talking to these physicians and colleges and say hey we can work together you know and and this is a working relationship where when you refer people to me, I'm part of their care and we can look at their, whatever measurements you're interested in, but you can, you can be a a really integral part of their, their cancer care and recovery.
0: Yeah, definitely. And especially, you know, a lot of what I speak to when I'm dealing with the, um, the doctors, whether they be part of the primary care physician team or the medical oncologists, um, or the oncology team is really around medically what, exercise can impact so when we're looking at treatment tolerance and treatment completion rates you know there's research that indicates that exercise can actually help improve you know your treatment completion um, or your treatment tolerance and reduce your side effects of treatment so the doctors benefit from this a lot because their patients are coming back to them with less issues with less side effects um happier they're needing them less you know this everybody wins in this kind of process
1: yeah that's a brilliant point and the other, the other point I was going to make, and kind of, uh, you kind of said it in passing, but the idea that a lot of this change can come from patients is such an important one because you know you in the trenches working in the clinical realm, and obviously you're coming into research now, doing your masters, and us, you know, producing this research. Too often we publish in a scientific manuscript in a journal somewhere, and uh, you know people say great job, and we keep moving on, but. It's such a slower process than if there are patients and survivors pestering their oncologists and physicians saying, "Hey, I'm not going to accept a pamphlet that says work out or exercise more and eat healthier." By demanding or, or searching for people who are who have an expertise in expertise in this area, it really can help drive the the field forward on the front end as well because just from a sheer number perspective if we can get the word out that this change can come from patients and survivors by bugging them from a a clinical translational perspective, um, that I think a a large amount of change is going to come from the patients and survivors themselves.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I think, um, you know, the patients are the ones that, well, they're the ones that I work with every day. And I really get to hear and feel and see all of their pain points of their cancer journey. And you know, when I was setting up my business, um, one of the big things that I went through was a, a value proposition where you really kind of understand what you're trying to add to the services that are available. And I did um, I did a bit of research with my own patients. So I reached out to a lot of them and started to ask them what, what were their biggest struggles during their treatment and with kind of engaging with exercise. Um, and when they first come to see me, when I ask them, what they want to improve or what their what their pain points and their issues are. The things I start to hear are things like, I want to have more energy. I want to feel normal again. I feel weak. I'm losing my balance. I'm worried I might fall. You know, I don't want to ask people for help. Uh, my body keeps failing me. my doctors don't have time for me. You know I'm scared that my cancer will come back. And things like I don't recognize myself in the mirror. So, You know, when you look at all of these things, and this is just a really small example of some of the feedback I got when I reached out to my patients, it kind of speaks to that physical, emotional, and then psychological journey and distress that that person is experiencing at that moment in time. And we know that exercise is one of the best ways that we can deal with all of those things simultaneously.
1: Yeah, it's really powerful to hear, as you said, not just the physical side effects, but but particularly just the. The psychological effects of the treatment and and the recovery process as well, which we we'll, we'll go on to, but I want to just quickly touch on so you, you set up this business and and a year old hopefully it's all going well. I want to pick your brain a little bit because I think uh, you know I've been approached by several people who want to get involved in this area in in the industry and so tell us some about some of the challenges you had in setting up your business and and you know chat about your structure and how someone else looking to emulate that can can kind of get some information from you?
0: Um, in some ways, I'm lucky because my partner, he is a business strategist and does business planning. So he helped me on a lot of the back end side of things. So I think if you're looking at starting a business in any area, you know, you need a clear direction and a clear plan on what you're actually trying to achieve. And for me, my goal was to enhance the services that were available to people with cancer. And this seemed like the most obvious and easiest way to do that. In terms of um, some of the challenges, you know the two big things that come to mind are referrals and money. So you know getting getting referrals from medical professionals has been a real battle. And it really took me back to when I first graduated university. So I finished um, university at the end of two thousand and five. and uh, on your on, one of your other podcasts, Bobby Chimo spoke about the Australian medical system and what what's, what's available, and that was just starting when I graduated. So I had this fantastic opportunity to be able to work with people with all types of chronic disease, and they weren't really having to pay out of pocket. So it really accelerated exercise physiologists in the healthcare system. Now, let's go forward 12 years and change that location to Canada, and it's a really different landscape. You know, I... I struggle to get referrals from doctors here because they're not used to doing that. They, they, it's not part of their kind of standard. Whereas in Australia I was getting faxes from medical oncologists for, with patient details saying this person needs to exercise. You need to see them now. Um, so I think referrals is the biggest part, but through education, um, through feedback to the doctors on how that person's going. So, you know, report writing and all of those administrative pieces that many of us working clinically maybe don't love, but, it will help advance care. You know they're important, and then all the education and outreach, all of that stuff's really important to kind of drive referrals. And obviously doing a good job, you know being safe about what you're doing, you know it it makes it a lot easier when when you're good at what you do and you're not harming people and you're helping improve their their life, ultimately. The referrals come because people start to talk and they tell their doctor and they tell their friends, and then people want access to the same thing. Um, on the money side of things, for me, the challenge has been that it's a fee for service program. And, you know, one of my kind of career goals ultimately is to have this kind of programming as part of standard of care. And I'm pushing every angle every way I can to try and have this included kind of like, I guess, a cardiac rehab model where someone gets a cancer diagnosis and there's a whole uh, multitude of options available to them that they can engage in that their doctor has recommended that are exercise based. So maybe they start in an in-hospital program, um, you know, during their cancer treatment. And then hopefully once they get to that point where they can trans- transfer into the community, there's those programs available too. Um, this, you know, the, the money part's hard because right now people have to pay out of pocket and it's tricky cause that's a big barrier. Um, so they're probably the two biggest challenges is kind of getting the referrals in and then finding a way, for people to, uh, to be able to afford what you're doing ultimately. Um, yeah. And then I guess in terms of the setup and structure, I think being really clear about what you're trying to do and providing something that is structured. So, you know, I I take an individual approach to care, but I still have a structure in terms of when someone approaches me, they have to have an initial assessment because I need to understand their journey basically their physical and medical history to this point, Um, whether that be cancer or non-cancer. And normally it's a combination of both. Um, So there's structure within how that program operates. You know, they all have an initial assessment. And from there we get creative. I'm a bit of a kind of problem solver, I guess, within that realm. And if someone comes to me and they say, I can afford to see you twice this year and I want you to help set me up with a home program, then that's what we do. Or if they come in and they're not sure what they need, then I tell them about all the different options and then the cost associated with all of those options, so they can go away and think about what's going to fit in best for them, so that they're not worrying about the financial part of uh, of engaging in something that could be life saving or life extending for them.
1: That's brilliant insight. And again, I'll kind of we'll go on to talk about the type of patients you see and how you design your programs in a little bit. But I want to highlight a couple of points you made there and this idea or this analogy of cardiac rehab is, is seems to be the common theme and people listen to these shows or these episodes of, of reach will definitely, it'll seem like we're beating a dead horse, but that's, that's the point. You know, I talked to so many different researchers and clinicians and even oncologists themselves and all of them give that cardiac analogy. And there's a reason why we're given that cardiac analogy because it's so powerful and it's, it's, such a good representation of what we're looking to do in that you get your initial diagnosis and you come see your oncologist your radiologist your surgeon and someone like us that straight off the bat we have we are part of your your medicine staff i suppose and and we're integrated into that care to to one you know buffer that hit you're going to take from treatment keep you as fit as we can during treatment and then restore your function after treatment and it's such a powerful analogy that anyone who's listened to this show, I, I, I'm i going to continue to, to emphasize it because it, 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 I really think it's it's an ideal model and we can learn so much from cardiac rehab's mistakes, you know, and, and as, as we develop more cost-effectiveness trials, I think well, that's where we're going to make, make a lot of progress. And then I suppose the other part I want to emphasize is when you're talking about just the time it takes to set up a program like this, a lot of people... Have heard me speak, or have heard, you know, or have seen research, and come to me and say, "I want to work with cancer patients, and survivors," and you don't want to create unnecessary barriers to professionals, but at the same time, it does require a certain degree of expertise, and so looking at appropriate certifications, whether it's be from uh, ACSM or or whoever it may be, taking the time to learn about cancer, its pathophysiology, the treatments, the diseases. Um, and really educating yourself on, on how much work goes into this because I think people looking out, looking in from the outside, tend to go, Well, exercise is safe and good without realizing a lot of the modifications that I'm sure you'll speak about have to be done with patience. And so, you know, while, while we, we are desperately calling for help and desperately calling for, for people to come into this area and help us out, you do need to have that caveat that there, there does need to be a certain background knowledge and expertise in this area before you're going to work with these people and that will give you that credibility with the oncologist too.
0: Yeah I totally agree and you know that's where I feel really lucky in my exercise physiology training because that especially having that in Australia the program I went through really set me up for strong clinical rehabilitation in chronic disease and you know beyond that so beyond my undergraduate studies you know I've gone on to take about six or seven different cancer exercise courses and you know cancer patients are complicated they're they're presenting often with many comorbidities so it's not that they have cancer and they're going through chemo it's that they also had heart disease you know, um, it had two stents put in maybe three years ago, and they've, they're overweight, and they've got high blood sugars, you know, pre-diabetic. There's lots of stuff going on with all of these patients, and it's having that ability to be able to see all of their picture and look at what are the biggest risk factors for them right now, and what do we need to address from an exercise lens and from a rehab lens as well.
1: Yeah, certainly. So let's let's talk about your clinic and and uh you know what sort you 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 said you see people all across the cancer care continuum and what sort of patients do you see you know types of cancer where they're at in their treatment and what does that population look like
0: Okay so I really do see all types of cancers um if I look at patients that I'm working with right now um I've got everything from an early stage prostate cancer survivor who's on active surveillance through to someone with metastatic prostate cancer, um, breast cancer, again, early stage during treatment, um, metastatic breast cancer, uh, lots of different gynecological cancers. Um, I see like glioblastomas and other types of brain cancer, uh, people with different types of blood cancers, either going through treatment, um, Pre and post surgery so like a stem cell transplant. Um, what else? Uh, every, you know, there's so many different types of cancer. I've worked with a lot of um, kind of colorectal cancers um, and everything in between. Ultimately, so yeah, a really mixed range of cancer survivors. Um, often the person is that the the ones that I see tend to be more complicated, um, just because of my expertise. And I tend to see people during treatment um, or or soon after. I see less and less people that are maybe 10 years post-treatment and just looking to kind of get fit and active. I tend to refer those people to other professionals in the community that can do a really good job of managing their recovery um, and their ongoing exercise. Um, so, yeah, with the kind of patients that I see, I end up dealing a lot with things like fatigue, um, pre- and post-surgical post-surg- issues, Um, So if we're looking at breast cancer, you know, there's often lots of range of motion issues, uh, lots of fatigue and chemo brain um, that would, you know, cognitive dysfunction and peripheral neuropathy and lymphedema and all of those kind of things. Um, Yeah, so it's a really it's a real mixed bag and that keeps it very interesting.
1: Can you maybe get a little bit more specific about certain modifications or, or common adjustments you make based on maybe the site of cancer? So say prostate versus breast what do you traditionally see, and how do you, you know, what are what are the more common modifications you make?
0: Yeah, okay, I'll speak to that as best I can, and we I'll see how I go because it's uh it is tricky because it is really individualized. With with breast cancer, often someone will have some type of surgery, whether that be a lumpectomy or a mastectomy, and then often they'll have treatment, whether that be radiation or chemotherapy and radiation. Um, and then maybe some ongoing hormone therapy. So, if we look at that as being the first example, common things that we'll see with that kind of patient are the number one kind of post surgery is going to be range of motion um, reduction on the surgical side. So, workarounds for that, so, you know, w- w- their their rehab at the start may be more range of motion specific. So, we might be doing what You know, I often engage physiotherapists in this part of their care um, if they need kind of hands-on treatment um, more manual therapy. And when it becomes more exercise-based, then I take that over and prescribe their exercise for them. Um, So they're doing lots of range of motion exercises, like using a stick and doing some wand exercises or a creepy crawly up and down the wall and anything that's in kind of the breast cancer recovery books that you can see and read about. Um, The other big thing that we see with this group of people are fatigue, cognitive dysfunction or chemo brain, and then peripheral neuropathy and potentially lymphedema. So there's a lot of things there. Um, The fatigue one, how I manage that, it's probably similar across all cancer types. And it's really tricky because the guidelines suggest such a large – A large prescription variety um, that you can safely give someone. So I think, you know, if you're looking at all the different exercise guidelines that we have for cancer-related fatigue, some of them suggest anything as low as 30% of your maximum heart rate, and others suggest anything up to about 85% of your max heart rate when you're looking at prescribing aerobic exercise, which is, you know, they're very different ends of the spectrum. So with fatigue, I'm often looking at what someone's doing in their life in total beyond just their exercise we do a lot of kind of pacing work so figuring out not just what you're doing with exercise but if you're finding that you're getting really tired that day what have you done is it that you went for an hour walk or a half an hour walk and your body is is not at the right capacity for that and you need to maybe do less is it that your exercise was too intense potentially or are you pushing too hard in all areas of life you know i was i speak to lots of different survivors and many breast cancer survivors are younger they're in their 40s 50s 60s they have kids maybe grandkids and they're they're juggling a lot of different things many of them are back at work there's so many elements um, of their life that can influence their energy so with the fatigue piece it really is looking into all of that and then trying to understand how you might manage that with that person um Peripheral neuropathy is another really common side effect for breast cancer patients specifically, but also I see this a lot in colorectal cancers um, and others that, you know, have typically like a taxane-type treatment that can Im- influence kind of some nerve uh, dysfunction. And with that, there's a lot that we can do to help the body move even if it can't feel. So peripheral neuropathy will often often uh, present with like numbness, tingling, pain, burning, um, or any mixture of those things. And so if you've got someone who has numbness in their hand and they're trying to do a day-to-day task like carry their dinner plate to the table, they may drop it, and that will be frustrating for them, but it can also be dangerous. And if they have that peripheral neuropathy in their feet or on the balls of their feet, their gait is challenged. So they may not be able to walk correctly. And I see this all the time where when someone can't feel their feet, their gait's so different because they're not getting that feedback. But there's lots of exercise modifications we can make for that person. And we can still train all the muscles around that area, even if they can't feel. So I give them a lot of visual feedback. So we use mirrors a lot um, when we're working with lower limb limb neuropathy. And they're looking in the mirror to see just how their gait's impacted. And when we're doing a squat – then they can actually see how their body's functioning there. Um, And lots of stability kind of exercises to help with that as well. Um, Another type of patient, I guess, that I would deal with a lot would be a prostate cancer patient. Um, I have kind of specialized in this area for the last two years because I work at a supportive care program that's hospital-based as well. Uh, So I see a lot of men with prostate cancer. And the common things that I see there are uh, urinary incontinence, erectile dysfunction, um, if they're on hormone therapy, we see a lot of fatigue, a lot of body composition changes and it's really, it's really hard to give like a two point kind of exercise modification or that kind of thing. Um, yeah, but ultimately, you know, with urinary incontinence, um, it's looking at get, making sure that they're doing some kind of pelvic floor or Kegel activation. And so they're starting with that. And if they need more help, then we refer them in our program to a pelvic floor physiotherapist for that specific kind of rehab, because um, they really can hone in uh, on the specifics of that exercise. And when we're looking at body composition changes, you know, for a man with prostate cancer, often his biggest risk factor is dying of heart disease. So, you know, when we're looking at, you know, I often see guys that come to me, they've just started hormone therapy, they've put on a bunch of weight, and that tends to be in their abdominal region. They potentially had pre-existing cardiovascular risk factors. Often there's high blood pressure. There might be elevated sugars, elevated cholesterol. We're really dealing with those things with exercise with that person and trying to reduce those risk factors as much as possible. You know, I've worked with glioblastoma patients who have had surgery and have, you know, been told that they may not have very long to live and 10 years later they're coming to see me for exercise and we're working on kind of balance-related challenges normally. Um, there's a lot of movement dysfunction um, and disconnect within how their body is trying to signal um, their muscle activation. So kind of working at a lot of um, proprioceptive um, kind of work and just getting motor patterning and movement happening in the right way. So that's kind of in the best case scenario, I guess. The, unfortunately, the more common scenario um, with glioblastoma, because it is a very aggressive cancer that's often caught very late, um, is more in that kind of end-of-life end of and kind of palliative stage. And I work with people in this area as well. And ultimately, at that point, it it really becomes individual. So I've seen people who come and see me who we might work together for four or five months prior to them passing away, and in that time it's really whatever they want to do, what they want to improve. So if they're able to walk still, then it's a lot of gait, um, stability, strength work, if that's what they're interested in. Um, often someone will come to me at that point and they want to keep functioning. They've been told, you know, you don't have very long to live, but they want that to be quality, the time that they've got left. So, you know, we are doing strength training where, doing some aerobic-based training, a lot of balance work, a lot of specific kind of rehab, muscle training, um, motor control kind of work. Um, And then even to the point where you know I've worked with people in the really late stages where I'm training their family on how to move their limbs when they're bedbound. So it does progress often for people to a point where they're not really stable on their feet. They might be spending a lot of time at home in bed. And at that point, the family can be really, uh, really important to help them to stay kind of mobile and to get as much strength training in then at that point as possible
1: that's they're they're both great points and um what I really liked about what you said is is it is palliative and your goals do change based on on that more you know let's just keep you moving but a lot of questions we get is I'm in this end stage and, and I am facing you know the end of life and our goal for you is to be able to as best you can really enjoy those last you know months or or maybe a year that you have and your physical function with will decline but can we buffer that to where you can you know spend an extra few months with your kids or grandkids as opposed to being bedridden and try and minimize the time that you are bedridden versus how much you can stay independent and I suppose the other point I really want to highlight particularly for professionals who may be listening to this is Almost any one of us that have worked in the cancer area have had uh, patients or participants or clients, you know, pass away. And unfortunately, just the nature of the the field we're in, that happens a lot. And personal training is, is, you know, in essence, very personal. And you get get really close to these people. And um, it's something that's important to highlight when people are getting into this field because, you know, it is fairly common
0: yeah it is. and it's tough, you know it it doesn't get any easier when someone passes away. Um, you do you know you you're part of each other's lives. and I guess everyone approaches it a little bit differently. But you know, my patients share a lot of information with me, and in return, they expect us to have a bit of a relationship. so we do. and it's a professional relationship obviously but you know we share a lot about our day-to-day kind of life and you get to know each other really well and your families and all of those kind of things so when you've been working with someone really closely whether it be for weeks months or years and you know and they they start to go downhill and um they end up passing away it's uh, it, it's really tough and yeah it, it doesn't get any easier um for sure but you get to kind of i guess remember all of the good things that you're able to help provide that person with. And I, it always reinforces to me the value of the work that I do and the industry that I'm in being able to help people at any stage, whether they be someone, you know, whether there's someone that's going to live for the next 50 years or someone that's got three months to live.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a great perspective on it. And it, as you said, it highlights the impact of, of exercise on these folks that even towards the end of life they're still willing to to come into you and take you know a couple of hours out of their very precious time to spend time with you and, and developing those relationships is a part of that and um, so that I really like that perspective so let's backtrack a little bit to, to your program and and I, I want to get across this idea of everyone I've talked to I mean myself we go through this initial consultation and um, can you give us a bit of a perspective on what that initial consultation looks like what do you look to talk about? What do you look to find out? And how do you use that information to design a program so patients going to you know what to expect, and and professionals maybe get an insight into how we work.
0: Yeah, sure. So, uh, an initial consultation it has you know mine have set formats, but I they're also flexible because uh, you know not every test that I may have on my sheet is appropriate for every patient that walks in that door. So, um, when I see a new person, I collect a whole bunch of their medical history. Um, I want to know all of their physical history, non-cancer-related kind of stuff. I want to know all their cancer-specific treatments and history as well. You know, what diagnosis were they given? What um, treatment have they been given? How long for? What specific type of chemotherapy were they given, if they know that? And they'll often bring in their reports from the cancer agency, which is fantastic because it helps – it helps all of us. They don't have to remember the details and I get the really specific medication details that I want to be working with. Um, and then we go on to things like fatigue. So I, get, I, I administer a few um, different types of questionnaires around capturing, you know, the level of fatigue and how that's impacting their general day-to-day functioning. Um, and that helps me get a better understanding of what it's actually doing to that person. Um, and how it's impacting their life and then we talk about all the other pieces so I want their perspective on what their biggest challenges are what are their pain points and then what do they want to achieve so that's kind of the first part of the assessment is you know understanding their history and their goals like why are you here what do you what do you want to achieve with your body and so the paperwork for them to fill out takes about I don't know 15 or 20 minutes and it's extremely valuable because it gives them a chance to reflect on, you know, why they're here and what they want to do. Because I can set my own treatment goals for that person, but it's going to be a lot more effective when their treatment plan is going to be a lot more effective if they've set the goals themselves and it's what they want to achieve. Um, the testing part of the assessment kind of happens next, and you know, different measures that I capture. So I do a, a bunch of different kind of anthropo- anthropometric and biometric um, analyses. So anything from kind of weight and height and body fat, um, body composition kind of measures, um, looking at waist circumference and um, going into then some basic strength measures. So, you know, grip strength and muscular endurance of the upper and lower body, doing some testing around that area, um, where it's needed a check range of motion so for a lot of kind of breast cancer patients as an example we will pretty much always do a range of motion assessment on their shoulders to see how that's functioning um and then looking at functional movement so do a gait and a posture assessment um and then some balance testing what else uh some general range of motion work so looking at their whole body flexibility and then fitness testing if it's appropriate so you know, the other week I was working with someone who came to see me for rehab post-tumor removal in their neck. And for this person, we didn't do a fitness assessment because they didn't need that. They were addressing all their aerobic concerns in other ways. Um, and they were really trying to get movement analysis and rehab exercises for that specific area. So it does become individualized based on the person. Um there's I, I try and do an aerobic test where possible, so I'm normally doing a submax treadmill test um, if that's appropriate, or or a six minute walk test if I need to go down that avenue um, to kind of understand what is your fitness level, how you know where were you at before, and we don't always have um, objective measures on this, but we can, you know, the person can tell me. You know, I had someone approach me the other day who was an ex professional tennis player who had played at like an Olympic level. So for that person, his expectation on what he wanted to get back to is going to be very different from someone who's never been active in their whole life.
1: What I liked most about that little piece was the idea in being flexible in both your assessment of these uh, patients and being flexible in how you train them too. And ultimately, as you said, it's so individualized, but having having the, the sense of mind to to be able to adjust those those things as you said you know someone (laughs) that's coming after a removal of a of a tumor in their neck looks much different than early stage breast cancer survivor right after surgery so i i really enjoy that i really like that you you kind of highlighted the need for flexibility in both assessments and programming well let's talk about your your really exciting news you've just been entered into or you've just been accepted into the master's program in in ubc first of all congratulations to that huge achievement and you know we're lucky in the research world to to have you you're moving forward in your career and you're starting to think a little bit more research i know you've been involved in some projects before but now you're maybe looking to design your own line of research what do you think are some of the most important areas or gaps in the exercise oncology literature and what do you think we need to address
0: Tricky question. Um, you know, there are I think there are a lot of gaps, but the the reason that I've kind of gone down or starting to go down the kind of research pathway is that, you know, I use this evidence as my bread and butter every day. And for most people, we're really bad at translating this great research that we have into clinical practice. So the knowledge translation piece right now I feel is really missing in most areas. And that's part of what I want to help with is taking what we know and what we're going to continue to find out about the specifics of exercise for someone with cancer and translating that into usable programs and services. So it actually impacts people beyond a research study. One of the big pain points for people in Vancouver is that the only way they get access to free exercise services if they have cancer is if they're part of a research study. And that, uh, you know, I, I hear this from my patients all the time. And that's one of the motivating pieces for me kind of going into research is trying to join the dots a little bit better between what we know, and then what we're actually doing in clinical practice. And it kind of comes from both ends, you know, I'm kind of coming into the research world a little bit to help join the dots from that end. But then as a practitioner as well, you know, we've all got a responsibility to use the research as we're designing our services that we're delivering as well right so both sides of that kind of equation can help to improve patient services and what's available to people Um, the big piece i guess that interests me that i'm going to be pursuing a little bit more is around behavior change so you know my thought on all of this is i can give someone the best exercise prescription ever but if they're not going to do it it's useless so how do we not only engage people with exercise that have, you know, for people that have a cancer diagnosis, how do we engage them, but how do we keep them moving? How do we keep them doing this through the long term so that it becomes like like brushing their teeth so they're not thinking about it, they're just doing it. You know, that's kind of my goal is to try and help improve that behavior change piece through programming and usable services.
1: That's a brilliant point about behavior change because I think too often a lot of us you know trainers, researchers whoever we may be tend to be young, tend to be trained in the area of exercise physio- physiology may have came from an athletic background. So we really don't understand the mindset of exercise not being a part of your life and not being a habit and it's so hard to it's so hard to put yourself in, in, in that position where you, there's folks that don't consider it a priority don't even consider exercise an an option and so I I really like the idea of of behavior modification it speaks to professionals interested in this area a lot of the, the patients who come to you that are fit and active and former professional athletes are in the minority and more often than not these a lot of these folks tend to be inactive tend to have quite a few barriers in front of them so it's it's on us to you know really work with them and try and meet them where they're at and and move forward together. So on that note, based on your, your wealth of experience, can you give any sort of advice for professionals listening to this who may be interested in getting into this area and working with cancer survivors? And another piece of advice for any sort of patients or survivors who may be listening and looking to start an exercise program?
0: I strongly encourage you to start reading the guidelines and the research and starting to kind of upskill In this area so you know you can do a course and you know there's plenty around now that you know the ACSM course is a great way to start and get certified and to kind of build your body of knowledge and then start like actually start working with people and speak to your patients that you're working with understand what they really want and need and if you're unsure reach out to people that might be able to help you I was lucky early in my career, I had to and even now I've had some great mentors along my journey, the whole you know, and right now, even I've got a really great group of people that really help guide what I do. and it's it's helped me immensely to understand, you know if I get someone now that has bone metastases and wants to engage in an exercise program, how do you do that safely, and how do you find out the information so that you can do that safely, if there isn't much around? And I think we can all help each other here. So I encourage people to reach out to professionals um, and ask them questions. And you may not always hear back, but keep trying. Um, Reach out to the researchers if you've got a specific question on what they're doing. I've done this a few times with certain protocols that I've read about and thought, that's amazing. I want to implement that into my practice. And when I reach out to the researcher that did it, they say, ah, I wouldn't do that now. And I ask them why. And it might be because, They realized that it was too time-consuming for the person for too little gain. So they're they're now currently following a different guideline. So being able to kind of educate yourself in all of those areas is really important because this is a very gray field still and we're not at a black and white point yet. It's not, you know, do one thing and this result will happen. There's so many possibilities with exercise and what we can prescribe and we can do harm if we do it wrong. So don't be afraid to say, I don't know this and I need some help. Uh, I do that all the time with people, and it helps me learn so much. For for a patient looking at getting into this, I would encourage you to try and find a professional that has experience in prescribing exercise for cancer. And so, you know, wherever you are in the world, the these professionals are either going to be exercise physiologists they may be physiotherapists they may be kinesiologists they may even be personal trainers that have a good you know good experience with older adults and extra cancer training so you can go to any of those professional bodies kind of websites and search for a professional and see their areas of interest or you can search online now um thanks to the good old internet we have uh, lots of tools available to us to find these kind of professionals we are still few and far between um But I'm working to try and change that because the more of us that are around, the more services we can provide. So I think, you know, getting someone qualified is number one and starting to do something. You know, if you're looking at maybe starting exercise, then start, like start by going for a walk and, you know, then find, connect with a professional that can help you understand how to do resistance training correctly for your situation. Pester your doctor if, uh, if you have specific medical concerns, um, to help connect you with those people in the community that can help you
1: we do we have to find a balance between you know making people understand some of the uh, modifications they may have to make with exercise versus not putting too many barriers in front of them and so this idea of of just walk you know anything is better than nothing and you know there's certainly some considerations you have to have based on the treatment and based on you know some of your side effects but at minimum you know walking is safe and there's very little evidence that it can be harmful you know and i really enjoy that point and listen sarah i love what you're doing up there in vancouver so if if there is people in that area listening to this and i want to get in touch with you and reach out to you how can they how can they find you or where can they go to to reach out and get in touch with you
0: Sure. Um, The easiest way to find me in kind of a few of the different programs that I work within would be to go to my website. Uh, So that is uh, www.sarahweller.ca. So um, yeah, that would be the best way. And then I'm also on Twitter and, you know, pretty active with all the different research that's coming out. So if you're interested in you know learning more about kind of cancer and exercise from a research kind of lens then you can find me on twitter um and that is underscore sarah weller
1: listen sarah i really appreciate you give us an insight i think it was a a fascinating listen and chat for me to, to learn about what you're doing and you know the the people you work with it's just incredible stuff you're doing so thanks a lot for stopping by and chatting with us and uh, we really appreciate appreciate your time thanks for having me so that's it for today's episode folks i hope you enjoyed it be on the lookout for next week's episode where i talk to dr Kristen campbell about some of the key research questions that need to be answered for us to really progress this field forward and try and establish exercise oncology as a standard of care so really fortunate to have Kristen on the show and talk about some of her research and i'm really excited to get that information out to you so be on the lookout for that show next week and uh, thanks for tuning in folks we'll talk to you next time